It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. So, Paul, tell us about your latest <laughs> endeavors in the world as a entrepreneur and coach and uh, all-around fantastic human being. Like, that's how I would normally start podcasts. And I'm like, Paul, it's really good to meet you, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for sure. I think... That's those are the type of podcasts I much listen to. I prefer to listen to as well. And so I feel like it's just a little bit more interesting when you feel like you're a fly on the wall, you know? There's enough shows where expert at each other. Yeah. It's expert. You used it as, as a verb. They've been experting for so long. <laughs> Actually, on that note, I'm curious. Paul, we did a, an episode months ago about if we f- discussing whether or not we thought somebody could ever be an expert because there's always more to learn. How do you feel about that word expert? Uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of weird because I think that I think there's two sides to that. I think that the people who feel like they aren't expert enough probably are. And the people that think that they are experts probably aren't as big of an expert as they think they are. Yes. So I think you. it's kind of both. Yeah. Do you consider yourself an expert? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I don't even know what I do. <laughs> Neither do we. Oh, good, good, good. We're not alone. We're not alone. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. I love that, actually, because I felt like growing up, and actually, maybe it's a lot about each of us being, I'm assuming, similar ages, I guess. I don't like to talk about age too much because I feel like it's so irrelevant in most cases. But the one time that it does seem to make a difference is just the time in which you were growing up. And for me, at least, it felt like, you grow up having this big idea about business and your path as a career. And for me, the education system was always pushing you towards being very well educated, getting your degree. It was a very formal going into a nine to five job. Even though I studied a creative topic, which is filmmaking in school, it's still even with that, it was kind of like you had to follow this formula in order to become good enough at something and worthy of a position and making enough money. And so I grew up with that mindset. And then over the years, it just feels like less and less and, and more of a gray area in terms of what I do. And I actually start to feel anxious whenever somebody asks me what I do, because I feel like I could give them a five-minute explanation trying to cover all the bases. My answer so, depends on how badly I want to talk to the other person. Uh, <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. That's amazing. So what would you say in this case, if just me as Whitney asking you, what do you do? What would your answer be to me? I'd probably say that I do a multitude of things. I, I write books, host podcasts, teach courses, run software companies, you know, this and that on the internet. Yes. And, and what would you give an, as an answer to a complete stranger if you didn't even know what their objectives were first? Same uh-huh. answer? No, probably just that I work in tech. Uh, And are you somebody that would wait until they ask more questions in order to elaborate? Yes, Mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't know. It's funny because like, obviously I do a lot of interviews, just in real life. I don't want to talk about myself and I don't want to be in like Jason's interview announcer mode in like just talking to people at like a party or a a dinner or something. Like I don't want to be that. Yeah. 
I don't know. I'd rather talk to other people about what they do because I already know what I do. So it's not that interesting to me. So right. having to listen to myself talk about that is like, I don't know. I already know this stuff. I, I feel about, the same way. Yeah, I agree too. Especially when I don't see, say, a friend or a colleague for a long time. And they'll be like, so what's going on? What are you working on? What's in the books? You got a new book coming out? You got a new show coming up? And I'm like, I don't really want to spend 10 minutes catching you up on my work life right now. It always feels a little stilted to give people this, I don't know, summation or cliff's notes on like my life since I've seen you. And also to back what you said, Paul, I feel so much pressure. I don't do at Whitney's behest, actually, one of the amazing things Whitney's taught me to be more eco-conscious. I stopped getting business cards printed. But I felt this increasing amount of pressure to figure out what to put on the business card. So I just stopped making them. I don't even have business cards. What was the last thing? What did it say on the last one that you made? I think it was something really, I tried to be cute. I tried to be like, you know, (laughs) I tried to be like creative culinary chameleon or something, (laughs) something cutesy like, ooh, culinary comedian, chameleon, Corinthian caricature. What does that mean? I tried to get a little too cute and I'm like, I know I'm trying too hard and I'm trying to create a title that is a conversation starter. Yeah. I kind of called myself out on it and was like, you're trying too hard and you're, you're trying to create an effect in a conversation with a person rather than letting it be organic. So I just stopped mm. making business cards altogether. And remember when that we were at the fancy food show in January, Jason, and, and it, at a certain point... You're walking around wearing these badges and then everybody just wants you to elaborate or they don't even read your badge and they just, you're asked over and over by hundreds of people what you do. And at a certain point, Jason just didn't want to say it anymore. And he got really annoyed at this one guy. <laughs> that poor guy. He was so sweet. It wasn't personal. I just couldn't do it anymore. I just shut down. I was like, I cannot explain this for the 253rd time today. I I hear that. Yeah, basically (laughs) the same. I most of the time it's just what I just want to think of something that won't have any further questions that we can move on to something that I actually (laughs) want to talk about. We were talking about in a recent episode about compliments and boomeranging things back. So when someone pays you a compliment, you automatically give them one. And I feel like I do that is I try to give as short of answer about what I do as possible so I can ask them what they do and hopefully turn the conversation to them. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. That's. I feel like that's my mo as well. Yeah. Is I'm uncomfortable that you want to know something about me and that I'm talking right now. So how can we how can we flip this around? I think part of it, though, I imagine Paul that you're introverted like me, and mm-hmm. Jason's extroverted. Typically, sometimes he gets into an introverted mode. But for me, it's about the energy. It just feels so exhausting to have to talk about myself. And I think part of that is because I don't want to waste my energy sharing something if they don't really want to know that much. And so I love that tactic of just saying something really simple. And if they ask, if they're interested, I'll elaborate. But it really only feels worth it if it's going to turn into an interesting conversation, as opposed to somebody just trying to see what they can get from me. Yeah. Qualify me to see if I'm worthy of their attention or whatever. While they're looking around the room to see if anybody more important is there. That's the worst. And it's funny too, because I just pulled up on your website one of the things that I like about your site. First of all, a little side note, I love how simple your website is, Thank you. which we will link to on our website too for anyone who's curious. Your website is such a great example. It's almost a counter to the current styles of websites. And I think of yours often, Paul, and I've actually used it as inspiration for my personal website. 
Cool. Because I just like how there's no graphics. It's just super straight to the point, very simple. And one of my favorite pages is the now page. And I just went on there and you haven't updated it since January. And I'm kind of glad that that's the case because the very first thing on there says that you're currently saying no to interviews, speaking <laughs> engagements. And I'm glad I didn't read that before we asked you on the show because I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> well, that's So I, my default answer to everything is no. And then I have to really think about it or be convinced to change my mind. I find it's just easier to be that, well, everything's a no. So for interviews, if you had asked, I would have said yes, even if I'd updated it whenever, because it's like, I know you and you're interesting to talk to. So talking to you more sounds good. I've never talked to Jason. So talking to Jason for the first time seems like a good idea. But I mean, even gluten, like I'm probably getting gluten tomorrow. (laughs) Oh my God. It says, no, I'm saying no to gluten, but tomorrow's my my birthday. I'm going to eat gluten. (laughs) That's like us too. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I can't even say that I'm gluten free because there's so many times where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to change my answer for this circumstance because I can't resist it. Yeah. Just get this man a birthday croissant. Someone get this man a birthday oh, croissant, please. That would be, so, be so good. I live in the woods. Nobody delivers food here. So in this quarantine, I basically have to make everything that I want to eat, oh, wow. which isn't bad. Like, actually, I love cooking as like like you guys, but still, like, I can't just get things that I want. I can get whole ingredients that I can then turn into things. But mm-hmm. Obviously, that's work. So what's the best thing that you've made that's maybe something you've never made before, but you were encouraged to make because you felt it was necessary? There's probably something. I, the last week, I've just been going back on my usual, basically college self of ramen noodles, but they're like gluten-free organic ramen noodles with broccoli and tofu or Beyond Meat. And that's that sounds basically so been, good. It is with a little bit of Thai chili spice and a little yep. bit of brags, just really good. I do have a recipe open that I haven't tried, but I may try tomorrow. It's for noodles. Like from scratch? Yeah. Fun. Lamian noodles. Lamian noodles. I'm probably butchering it. But you use the pulled noodles as well. Like you get in um, like Asian soups and that, which are Mm. delicious. And what they do to relax the gluten bonds in it is they use nutritional yeast. There's a different ingredient that they use in Asia, but you can't get that over here. So a chef figured out that you could put nooch in the gluten and water, and that relaxes the gluten bonds and makes them all line up. So you can pull it without it breaking. (gasps) I've watched the video probably (laughs) 18 times. This is exciting. This is blowing my mind. (laughs) I've never heard this before. Me neither. I've watched the video so many times, and I've never watched a cooking video so many times and not actually made it. So. I might make that tomorrow because I have nutritional yeast and flour and water. So Isn't that fun when you discover that you can make something, you have all the ingredients at home and you never thought to combine them in a specific way? Exactly. Like I can't make donuts right now, even though I want a donut. So I was pretty stoked about these noodles. So I'm like, I can yeah. do that. But that you know good. what? You probably could find a donut recipe with what you have. Probably. It just might not taste as great. That's the only yeah. downside. True. I've been making boba a lot. I was really into boba drinks. And that's my big discovery during quarantine was <laughs> how to make my own organic boba. And it has been so much fun. It turned into a little bit of a obsession of mine. And every day I try to like outdo myself. What, what's <laughs> in a boba? Well, there's two versions. And okay. that was also exciting. The first is the traditional boba, which is made from tapioca starch. 
And that's just two ingredients, just water and tapioca starch, which I had from a previous recipe. It's so simple to make and it tastes incredible. And that was really exciting because most boba drinks, a cafe, are loaded with sugar and dyes and various ingredients. And so it was just nice to know how how basic it could be. And then the more exciting discovery was how to make a low-carb boba from agar agar, which I got sent to me from a company. And it turns out you can make all sorts of cool things with agar agar because it's a gelatin substitute. So you can make jello, you can make gummy bears, you can make all basically anything you could imagine that you would use gelatin for. And it's also very simple. Plus, you can infuse it with things. I've been making coffee boba, matcha tea boba, (laughs) like all these different flavors, strawberry, raspberry. It's been really fun. So it's kept me kept me preoccupied. The other thing that I was thinking of is going back to you saying no. Jason and I talked about Tim Ferriss and an article that he or a blog post he put up semi recently about how he wasn't going to read any new books in 2020. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. What do you think about that? And I think, I mean, just give you something else to discuss besides books is his point was that he was saying yes to so much. So he was similar to you saying no to writing blurbs already. And he was just being inundated with with book opportunities from other people that wanted him to read the books and review them or blurb them or whatever else. I think that that boundary he set was super interesting. So I'm curious. I'm also having very weird deja vu in this moment. Like we've already had this conversation, Paul, and I, I'm like... We might have. Did we talk about this when we saw each other last year? But this is something new. So this is kind of freaking me out. But anyways, yeah. what do you think of him in, in particular? But what's your relationship with books right now? I haven't read a book for a little while. I've been on a podcast... I think, yeah, for probably about a year. I Typically, I'm a voracious reader on and off. So I'll go through a year or two or I read about a book a week and then I'll take six months to a year off. And right now I'm in that we're, we're, I'm in the we're taking a break period. So I've just been doing podcasts. I feel like as well, because I do a lot of work on the computer, I just need a break and I want to learn stuff and I want to be entertained. But I, if I can close my eyes and do it, I'm. it's more, I don't know, it just feels better for me in this particular moment. So I just l- like to listen to a podcast and put my headphones on, close my eyes, listen to podcasts. Or my wife and I will put a podcast on the speaker and just like lie down on the couch like we were watching TV, but instead we just lay there and listen to somebody talk. That's yes. so sweet. It is pretty sweet. What um, are some of your favorite podcasts right now that you like to listen to alone and together? Yeah, so I really like, to, I don't listen to all of Tim Ferriss's shows. I find that when he has a guest that's really interesting, he is the best interviewer in the entire world. When he has a guest that not that interested in, I don't. I tend to skip those. So Jane Goodall, who I think is a gift to humanity, was on his show. I think it was last week or the week before. And that was one of the best interviews I've ever heard. She is just Whoa. such an amazing person. And the, the things that she's done for animals and animal rights is just amazing. And that the breadth of her career spanning decades and decades is like it boggles my mind that somebody that awesome exists on this planet. So that was a good one. I'm also a nerd, so I really like Reply All on Gimlet. So I listen to that quite a listen to that for years and years and years. The shows that I listen to with my wife are mostly either running shows. She's big into running, so we listen to things like Rich Roll 
um, and a couple other shows. And we're also big into football. So we listen to a football podcast. There's no sports at all anywhere at the moment. So just listening to sports podcasts is basically all that we get to do, which is all right for now. So yeah, I think those are the main ones. I don't know. Let me just, I'm just going to look at my phone. <laughs> when you say football, Paul, may yes. I clarify, do you mean American run ball that is called football or do you mean European football? No, I mean, I am British, so I should have, well, my family is, I'm not, I'm Canadian, but yeah, American NFL. Um, gotcha. That kind of stuff. Gotcha. I was curious which one you meant. Yeah. Yeah. So I listen to, I sometimes listen to Ezra Klein's show, which is good. He does some vegan episodes too, which is really interesting. So usually it's super political, but that can be political too, I guess. I also listen to the Privacy, Security, and OSINT show with uh, Michael Bazell, which is... Which is great to hear you bring up because <laughs> we definitely want to talk about privacy today. Yeah. Those are kind of the main ones. And then, yeah, a bunch of um, like vegan running shows, pretty good as well. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't. I don't even think I answered your question. I'm sorry, Whitney, about Tim not reading a book. Yeah. So I think that it's hard as a creator to constantly be, or to, I guess, constantly feel the pressure of needing to make something new for an audience, which I think we all feel because people want like the new thing, the next thing, like I've, I've read your, like, I think a week after I released my last book, I got an email asking when my next book was coming out. And I was like, really? <laughs> like that one took two Whoa. or three years. Like, uh, how about we just pump the brakes a bit? So I too have been kind of going back and like rereading articles that I like listening to shows that I like more than once, even watching series is on Netflix more than once. Cause I feel like we're in such a rush sometimes to consume new things we just kind of get caught up in that. We almost mindlessly get through it. And then we're like, okay, what's the next thing? Oh, I can't, well, I can't, I don't care until I, there's like the next episode of this thing. And it's like, we'll probably put a ton of work into the other thing. And if we just rush to consume everything, then we might not be getting, uh, there's a few things that I've watched where I've watched it a second time or read it a second time or a third time. And I've been like, oh, I missed so many things here, right? Yes. So maybe... So I agree with Tim with going back and looking at or rereading things could be really, really useful because I think there is that pressure on people that create for a living or perform for a living or whatever, however you want to phrase it, where it's just, okay, all the stuff that you've done, that's cool. I watched it once already. Give me something new. It's hard to keep up with that. And it's hard for that to be a pace or a, or a weight sometimes. For sure. And that also reminds me of music. One of my favorite bands is One Republic, and they were supposed to come out with a new album, I think, next week. And they decided to delay it till December. Mm. And as somebody who loves their music, I felt disappointed by that. And I thought, gosh, it's so strange because you'd think releasing music right now that makes people feel good is such a wise choice. And then I read an interview with the lead singer, Ryan Tedder, who said he not only felt weird about promoting something right now, but he also had a really great point, which is that people keep saying they want something new, but what they really want is just to feel good. And they can do that by listening to music they already know. Yeah. And as soon as I read that, I thought, wow, that's so true. Because when you listen to a new album, it takes a little while to get into the music. It doesn't really resonate with you until you know some of the lyrics or you've heard it a few times and it sounds familiar. This actually happened 
with me when I was listening to Fiona Apple's new album that she just Mm. came out with. And Jason was telling me how much he loved it. And the first time I listened to it, I was like, eh, it's okay. But then I listened to it like three times, three or four times. And and now I actually enjoy it because it's familiar to me. And so listening to it becomes more pleasurable. And then I also found myself more interested in listening to her older albums. And just like Ryan Tedder's point, as soon as I listened to her older music that was really familiar to me, I found that that was what I actually wanted. And her new music just kind of pointed me back her old work. So it's fascinating how we sometimes think that we want something new, but the old things that we love already might just be equally, if not more pleasurable. Yeah. I mean, I need to go listen to Tidal again. It's been a while. It's been a long while. It's so good. For me, the second album is where it's at. But I think a part of that is because of all the memories I have associated. Like that album was a, a huge album for me as a teenager. And it just brings me back to all of those feelings and experiences I had. So it's so interesting with music or even books. Your memories are attached and that's often what makes you like something. No, I I agree. Especially with fiction, I can remember for some fiction books, I can remember like what was going on in my life when I was reading them because I was reading them to escape from those things. And it's like, yes, it's yeah. I mean, I some of those books I've read several times and I still like reading them. Yeah, This is such an interesting, I guess, apex of different things in terms of where art and creativity and entrepreneurship kind of intermingle. And bringing up this topic of some of our favorite musical artists, you know, Fiona is an interesting example because she's not on social media. And she came out with this brand new album last week and it charted and it was the number one most downloaded album for like an entire week. And it had all of this, I guess, quote, commercial success. And she promoted it zero times on, and she's not on social. Other people were I sharing she was it. on Twitter or something. I'm going to go look this because well, I was trying to find her on Instagram. She's definitely not on she's there. Definitely on Insta. Yeah. But, but I guess the point is I feel that when we go back to the newness that we've been talking about of this pressure to constantly release new content, constantly release new consumable, monetizable content or products. And I don't know. I get caught up and I still do get caught up in my life and career with this thought, which is, am I creating these products, experiences, and content out of maybe a belief system that if I don't continue to release them, I'll lose relevancy. I won't be top of mind in my industry for people. I will not make as much revenue and put myself in a compromised financial space. Or am I creating it out of a genuine joyfulness and desire just to share my art and my creativity. And I think I'm still trying to find the balance of that where you hear about it in the music business all the time in many industries, right? Like where the head of the record label will be like, you got to release some pop songs. You got to release stuff that people are going to dance to. And then the band looks at them like, we don't want to do that. We want to write songs about our hearts being broken and these relationships ending in like real shit. They're like, but that's not going to sell. And I feel like I get caught in that space as an artist and an entrepreneur of, do I release stuff that people will buy so I can stay relevant and make money? Or do I just say, well, maybe fuck that a little bit. I'm just going to do what I want from my heart and roll the dice and see how it goes. I don't know. It's a weird conundrum, I think, sometimes in my mind. Yeah, I feel that because, yeah, I mean, especially as you see some progress in your career, more and more people are relying on it to 
like as their job, basically, whether it's like a publisher or an agent or a, a record label executive, like they make money because artists release things. And I think the bigger you get, the more it's like, there's some weight here now. But as well, I think, yeah, to your point about like staying relevant, it's hard to think about like, and I do, I guess with my stuff, I do stop. So I, I think about it, but I try not to let it affect me, I guess, where I like, I'll take it in and I'll acknowledge that I feel that, but I'll try not to the best of my abilities, at least try not to react to it. I, I mean, that's why I'm not on most social media. That's why I take a break from the internet for a couple months of the year just to kind of reset. But I do feel that like, what if I come back and nobody cares? Right? Like I've been doing that for probably six years of taking typically November, December off and then coming back and people don't go away. I mean, I'm sure some people do, but then new people come in and it doesn't make any measurable difference in my business or in, I guess, the attention that people give my work. But it's still there. It's still something that I feel all the time where it's like, well, am I going to be, I think I wrote about this before, because for some reason coming to mind, like, what if I've hit peak Paul? And what if the <laughs> amount that people give a shit is only going to decrease from here on out? So yeah, I relate mm. to that. Big it makes me wonder too, because I was thinking about this yesterday. So this is, a, I think, on the mind of any content creator, whatever it is that you're creating, is this, I don't know if it's like a cultural expectation that you should always be producing and hustling. We talk about hustle so much on this show. Our different viewpoints on it, where we've gone through different phases of feeling like we always have to be producing or marketing, marketing, and it's just go, go, go all the time and rushing. And I go through periods of major resistance to that. And then during that resistance, I simultaneously feel fearful. And then I just wonder, is it just my ego that me thinking, oh, well, if I don't create content, people are going to miss me or they're going to decide they don't like me anymore because I'm not creating enough for them. And then I think about some of the people I admire, like Fiona Apple is a great example. I mean, I've been a fan of her music for over 20 years. And how many albums has she come out with? Not that many. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how much time passes between albums. I'm still a big fan. I still can't wait to listen. And actually, sometimes it makes me feel more excited. It's more meaningful. And I think right now, there's so many content creators, whether they're authors or podcasters or social media influencers, whatever, that are just creating so much that you don't even have a chance to miss them. And that I actually wonder this with our own podcast is we release three episodes a week. Is that too much? Does that mean people feel like there's always going to be something so it doesn't matter when they tune in? Like They don't feel that desire to listen to every episode because there's so many of them. Yeah, it's hard for me. I like to try to find a cadence to releasing because then that feels like it takes decisions away. So if yeah. for you, if it's three times a week, then as, if you're following the schedule, you're sticking to the schedule. <laughs> That's good. Just For me, it's the once a week newsletter. I don't feel the pressure to release more than that because I know that, I mean, I called it the Sunday dispatches. <laughs> so it's like, if you got an email on Wednesday, it'd be kind of weird. So right. I feel that having a cadence with that at least has been really helpful for me. But then for other things, like I don't have a cadence for writing books. I don't feel I don't even want to write another book right now. But by next year, that could probably change. I, I go through it's just like with reading, same with writing, like I'll go through phases of where I need to write a book, and then I write a book. 
And then I don't want to write a book ever again. And that lasts for a little bit of time. And then I come back to it and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember writing books. Writing books is kind of fun sometimes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And one thing I actually really like about your website as well is I was on there trying to catch up on anything I might have missed. And it isn't that easy to find blog posts. I don't even know how to do that. Like when I go on there, if you click on words, you are directing people to the newsletter. And then here's some samplings of newsletter <laughs> articles, which I thought was super smart from a marketing perspective, because it makes you want to subscribe so you don't miss anything. And I just love that. I love how simple it is and encourages people because of that FOMO, right? Like they don't want to miss anything. So they better sign up for your newsletter. And even if they batch read them, which is what I tend to do with yours, especially is I'll go through phases a couple times a year and I'll just read like 20 of your newsletters in a row <laughs> and catch up. I feel like a lot of ones. people do that. It's interesting yeah. to me that happens for some people. And I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't, it doesn't, I don't care either way. If people are reading it, I'm stoked. But it's interesting. And yeah, I mean, 90% of what I write doesn't show up on the internet anywhere anymore. Like mm. I just don't, I just don't post it because I just <laughs> I don't care enough to right. put it on the internet. I send it to my mailing list. Enough people there read it. And I feel like, okay, well, some people read that. So cool. I feel good about that. I love what you just said. You, one word I want to pluck out, Paul, that I got really excited about is you used the word enough. You said enough people read it. I think that that stood out to me with what you just said because as part and parcel of this pressure conversation or this expectation to constantly be putting out content, I think a part of that is not enough followers, not enough comments, not enough newsletter subscribers. And there's a whole slew of certainly, I think our collective industry of, I don't even know what to call our collective industry of products and coaching and things designed to get you more subscribers, get you more followers, get you more comments, get you more likes. So I love that you you use the word enough. And, and also, you know, looking at your website, and the wonderful, I actually took a look at one of your recent posts on how to build wealth slowly and compound interest and all that stuff. You're, it's like you've anti-branded yourself. There's no logo. There's no flashy graphic design. There's no advanced UX architecture. It's just extremely minimalist and simple. And I'm curious if that was something that you intentionally created of, I'm going to make this minimalist. And in that conversation, I feel like minimalism and almost this anti-branding that I see with you, was that a conscientious decision for you? And also, why did you choose that? Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, my previous life was branding, design, and UX for Fortune 500 companies. So like that was my, for probably a decade and a half. And web, you were doing website design. So yeah. you do Karen Beginsky's website? Yeah, I did do her website. She was one of our very first guests on this show. Awesome. So I just had to give a little throwback to her. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Her and her pup doing yoga. I love it. So yeah, I mean, it's I come from that world of branding and design and all of that. Like I, I did marketing for some big names on the internet. And I just, when it came time to do my own, And it's funny too, because when I was doing that for a living, when that was my only job, my website still kind of looked like this. It looked kind of different, but it's still, I think it might've had llamas on it instead of a rat. Now the only logo is my little pink rat in the footer, (laughs) which you have to really look to find that you don't even see it. It has, there's one typeface. There's not even bold or italic. I tried to make it an experiment in how minimal it could go. So there's one font size, there's one color. There's no bold, there's no italic. And it was just to see, okay, well, how 
far can I take this while still making it look like it is, it does have some design to it, because obviously that's really important to me, but also just to make it seem like, I don't know, I don't want to be, and I kind of push against this, I guess, in my work. I'm not really interested in the the flashiness or the or that aspect of, I guess, internet marketing. I feel like me doing things this way is a bit of a thumb to my nose to other people who think that that is the only way to do it. And I want my site and my brand, I guess, to be more like, well, there isn't just one way to do anything, pretty much. Like, I mean, maybe if you're a doctor and you're doing open heart surgery, maybe there's one way to do it. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But for websites and for marketing and all of that, like you can just kind of do what works for you and what works for your audience and do it in a way that is authentic to you and it can still work. So. Absolutely. I mean, that's a big part of your company of one mindset, which that article you had about why staying small is the next big thing, or that wasn't an article that was on the Smart Passive Income podcast. I think that's also the byline on the book, I think, is why staying small is the next big thing in business. I love how you think that. You're not sure. (laughs) I love that so Uh, The woman who runs my North American publisher came up with that byline. I was like, that's great. Let's use that. She was like, okay, cool. And I remember that's what really drew me to reading your book, which you sent to me. Thank you so much. And it's, I feel that pull, that desire. I know Jason does too. He often talks about wanting to live in a tiny house. You know, there's this oh, yeah. desire to minimize. And I think a lot of people in our age ranges are going towards that. And a lot of people in their 20s and probably even their teens are just thinking like, how can I live smaller? How can I go to the bare minimum? And how can I travel more? I think especially after the stay at home orders and whenever that will be, there'll be a huge boost in travel because people are just want to get out and they want to explore and they want to feel free. And right now, even when we're staying at home, there's a desire to go more minimalist. I mean, you were saying earlier, Paul, how you're making food at home. To me, that's more minimalist. Going to the grocery store and buying all the packaged foods or going to the restaurants, which it takes a lot of work and more money than if you're at home and you're just using basic ingredients to make pasta. And it, that's one of my favorite things about staying at home is it reminds you that you don't really need that much to get by and feel happy and fulfilled. And the same can absolutely be true with our businesses. Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing right now is if the sun is out and like if that's happening then whatever else it doesn't matter as much because it's sunny and i mean i live in a rainforest so it doesn't happen all the time it's not hold on no it's not sunny right now either but it's just yeah i agree i think it's just like sometimes it can just be like little things that like we don't need to spend all of this money or do all these extravagant things for happiness or fulfillment or any of that we can like it can be it can be just little things that that just do it for us and it and i think yeah if we get anything from this self-isolation quarantine stuff maybe hopefully it's a bit of mindfulness in that area absolutely and i think that's also interesting because as human beings i feel like we're always looking for more and coming back to jason bringing up the enough side of it is The fact that one of the best things that you can do to increase your mental well-being is to meditate. And that's just like you were saying earlier, Paul, about like sitting down and closing your eyes. 
you could even consider like you listening to a podcast, a form of meditation because your eyes are closed and you're focused on something and you're tuning out everything else out. And yet people want to just go on this ongoing quest to find more and more. Oh, that's meditation isn't enough. Like I need to go to yoga and I need to do it at a fancy studio and I need to have the right yoga clothes and I need to bring, have the best yoga mat. And you go, you can take something as, as simple as yoga meditation and add all of these things onto it. And the same is true with your business or how you live. It can be so simple that you don't need all of this extra fluff. But I think sometimes people want those things because of that not enoughness mindset and the desire to just acquire as much as we possibly can, which ends up actually adding more stress to us in the long run. And stress to the planet as well. It's interesting because I think that if we dug deep enough into that, I don't think we would all come up with good enough answers for why we want more. I think that I think a lot of the wanting more or keeping up with Joneses or whatever it is, I think comes from a place of not being introspective or not thinking about what it is that we actually want or how will this more serve me in any way whatsoever? Or is this more something that I want? Or is this more something that society wants? Or is this more something that'll look good to my neighbors or my friends or, or that sort of thing? So or I it's think, just an excuse, don't yeah, you? Think? Yeah. You know, it's like a resistance, like, oh, well, I don't, I see this all the time with content creators and entrepreneurs is that they will think of every excuse not to do something because they don't have something. Well, I don't have the right microphone, but technically you could start a podcast by using your headset or the microphone built into your computer. It might not sound as great. That doesn't mean you can't start it. Or I don't have the right camera, so I can't make videos. But if you have a webcam or an iPhone or something equivalent, you can make videos with that. It's like, if I just convince myself I don't have the right tools, then I can give myself an excuse not to start because really, I'm just afraid to start. You said it, for sure. I think the other part of this that certainly sparks a lot of introspection, as you said, Paul, the introspective part of this is I work a lot on getting myself out of, well, not just out of the comparison trap when we go back to the enoughness, but preventing myself from lowering myself into the well. Like, don't put your hand into the trap. Not just once your hand's into the trap, how do you get it out? But don't stick your hand in the trap in the first place. There's a colleague of ours, I won't say by name, but he's in the health and wellness industry. And He's done really well for himself and he's massively scaled his business. And I've worked with him a little bit and talked about like how the revenues are exploding. And now he's got like hundreds of employees when he started with just himself and an assistant. And he's got the Aston Martin and he's got the huge house in San Diego and all this stuff. And I find myself looking at him sometimes going like, ah, man, why don't I have that? Like I've worked as hard as him. I've busted my ass. Like, should I have worked harder? Should I have? scaled my company to have hundreds of employees so I can have an Aston Martin and a Land Rover and a giant house in San Diego. But I found myself recently meditating on why I feel so transfixed with his success and comparing it to my perceived lack thereof. And then I thought, but is that even what you want? Do you want to be running a company with you know 400 employees? Do you want to just like go out and and get an Aston Martin and this giant SUV and have this house and and all this material stuff. Like, why do you even need that? And as I descended down that rabbit hole, I thought, well, you're trying to prove something. Well, what are you trying to prove? You're trying to prove that you made it. Well, what does made it even mean? Like, 
all the hard work and all the schooling and all the blood, sweat, and tears and all the effort finally, quote, paid off. It's like, well, why do you care about that? Like, this is the conversation with myself. It's like, oh, because you want to prove to other people that you're successful, that all the investments and money and blood and sweat and all that stuff, you made it because essentially I want the approval of other people or I want the attention of other people or for them to see me as successful and intelligent and a good entrepreneur. But when I got even a layer deeper into that, it was like, but do you really care that they think that about you? And I thought, no, I don't. I don't want to run a company that big and I don't want to deal with that kind of stress and I don't want to work that hard to try and impress other people. So I kind of talked myself out of a ledge with that one. You talked yourself out of buying an Austin Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go to the dealership. Not that they're open right now anyway. But Exactly. But yeah, I just love that introspective part you brought up because so many times we think we want something, but we never get deeper into the why we want it. And perhaps if it's approval or attention or significance or relevance, are there other areas or maybe... I don't know, less destructive ways that we can really just relax into those things without grinding ourselves into the ground or perhaps even playing a role in our lives that we really don't even want to play to try and get those things. Yeah. I mean, if you go after somebody else's success, the best case scenario is you've achieved somebody else's goal or dream. And the worst case scenario is you failed at something that you didn't maybe want in the first place. <laughs> like It just feels like a lose-lose in that scenario. For me, I always just bring it back to something simple. I always just bring it back to, okay, how do I want to spend my day, right? And if we're talking about your example of like 100 employees, I do not want to spend my day managing 100 people. That there are some people put on this planet to manage others and they excel at that and that is not me. I am awful at managing people and it's not a skill that I want to foster. So why would I ever try to achieve that other than to other than I guess for my own ego for the way that it looks to other people? And I mean, yeah, I don't have a good answer for wanting something like that. And therefore, that's not something that I want to ever go after. Yes. And that's exactly why awareness is so key. And I think Jason and I find ourselves recommending awareness or coming concluding our episodes with well, you know, the answer to this is just to become more aware of yourself because it's true. It is, you have to really get to know yourself and it takes maybe a whole lifetime. I mean, I don't know if we ever really know ourselves. I guess it depends on your definition, but even just having that awareness of the day to day. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I still discover new things about what I want every single day. And maybe it's even just the temporary desires. Like, what do I want literally today? It might be completely different than what I want tomorrow. And maybe I'll have that same want a few weeks from now. But I love that idea of tapping into yourself to really figure out what's important to you and not just what other people seem to enjoy. And that's what's continuously confusing about social media is we get into this mindset of comparing, comparing, and, and looking what seems to bring other people joy but we don't even know for sure that that brings them joy. Maybe this person Jason's referencing doesn't even want those employees. <laughs> you know, maybe he got those employees and then realized, uh-oh, this is not what I want, but I'm stuck now. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's always like, oh, how is this going to impact my freedom, right? And it's like you said, I want to, if my day can turn into something totally different and take it, take me wherever it takes me, then... I want to have the freedom to do that as opposed to 
not being able to, well, I have to have to work 12 hours today because I need to pay for this or pay for that or like pay off this loan or it's like that. I don't know. I get maybe it's just personal, but I don't think I could create under those circumstances. I don't think I'm strong enough or resilient enough a person to be able to have all of that weight and pressure of needing to succeed and needing to look good to other people and having, I guess, all of these employees or offices around the world like that to me would be so much pressure and stress that I don't think that I could make anything meaningful under those circumstances. That's not to say other people couldn't. I'm sure they can, but for me personally, yeah, it just, it wouldn't work. And another thing that seems to be a thread through for you, Paul, is this desire. Well, it kind of summarizes what we were just talking about, but segues into something else I want to touch upon, which is uh, Fathom Analytics. And you start off on the website saying it's everything you need and nothing you don't. (laughs) And I, I really like that because it is about like, what do you actually need? And what else is just fluff? What's unnecessary? What are you doing or using simply because everybody else is using it? And yours, this company of yours, or a tool, I should say, is about privacy and not collecting all that personal data. I loved one of your, I think it was a newsletter I was reading, or maybe it was on Twitter. I'm not sure. But I something that you put out recently was about learning how, I think it was a newsletter, because you were saying you weren't tracking who was opening your newsletters or who yeah, was clicking yeah. on them. It really got me thinking. Your newsletter, you were saying that it felt kind of creepy that we can track who's opening the emails and then we can figure out what emails to send them if whether or not they opened it and what links did they click. And that's such business as usual. But if you step back and look at the privacy side of it, it is really fascinating. And privacy is something I'm starting to get more into. I feel like I have to convince myself to care because (laughs) I think we're in this time where we're so used to like being so open and public, and especially as content creators, Jason and I have have spent our careers being open book. We share our lives on social media. And so you start to think, ah, I don't need to be private. Like I don't have anything to hide. And so I'm really curious about your perspectives on privacy and why it's important and why that's become such a, a big part of your career as well. Yeah, I think that to your point, because I exist, I guess, not I exist somewhat in public as well. But I think that we can be open and transparent about some aspects of ourselves, of our lives, of whatever, and still have things that we hold just for ourselves or just for loved ones or just for specific relationships, right? It's like you could be a very open person and not want to give me your social security number on air on a podcast. Like that would just be silly. Right? Really? Is that silly? Because I was just going (laughs) to hand it out to you to give you your chance. (laughs) I don't know what I would do with it. I don't know how to hack anything. But I think that there can be things that we hold as private. And I think that more and more people are starting to realize that and realize that maybe some of the trade offs that we're seeing aren't worth it. And kind of what I mean by that is there's some software that's free. But it's free, and these businesses give us this software for free, and they're businesses, and they're making a ton of money. And if they're not charging us for use of the software, then they're making money through other ways. And they're, they're mm-hmm. mostly making money through targeted advertising and selling data. And that, it's interesting, because I, I think I did a survey last year on my mailing list. I think I got something like 1,500 
respondents. And there's this kind of push and pull between people wanting the ease of use of some of these things like Facebook and using these things to stay connected, which is a perfectly valid reason to use social media is stay connected to other people, especially right now. It's kind of all we have, that and I guess Zoom. <laughs> but there's also the other side of it is like, well, what are we willing to give up? And if we get the knowledge of what we're giving up, do we want to continue to give it up? And I think as well that privacy, there's so many different parts to privacy. I think that we have seen examples of people like just like being docs, like their, their personal information has been put online, whether it's like women game reviewers where that's happened to, or even authors of business books where somebody didn't like something somebody said and their home address and things have been published on Reddit. And it's just like, yeah, if we can take steps to avoid that. And I mean, even all of us that use email software, you legally have to put an address in the bottom of any newsletter and email you send yep. to people. Why put your home address in there? Like that doesn't like get a PO box. They're not that expensive. And just things, just little things like that, or maybe use a VPN. So your ISP can't sell you can't sell all of your data to other people. And it's just things like that. I also think that it comes from uh, kind of coming to terms with privacy. Also kind of, I guess, not really exposes, but kind of showcases how much freedom we have in this in the society that we all live in, where there are countries that will come and arrest you if they find out that you're a homosexual or like just other things that is like, it just it boggles my mind that that happens. But on the privacy side of things, like you should be able to keep things private about your life, whether it's from your government, if you're not doing anything wrong, if it's just who you love, then good for you. But the government shouldn't be able to use that against you. And just things like that, where it's like privacy, and even things that where there are erosions in privacy, you tend to see governments say, well, you need to give us a bit more of your privacy for security. And it's just for now, it's just for these like wartime measures or something like that. But then it never rolls back to, oh, we're giving you back this privacy that we we previously taken away. So I think as citizens, we need to be aware of that with, with governments, however benevolent we think they are or, mal or malevolent they actually are. We need to be aware of things like that because governments are really there to serve us, the citizens. Right. And they definitely have power, but they don't have to have all of the power. And again, I'm kind of jumping around a lot, but on the, the side of technology and companies, like all these private companies, they don't have our best interests in mind. They want to make money. They're businesses. They're beholden to shareholders and investors and that. And they just want to increase their bottom line. So they're going to do whatever they can to do that. And if our privacy stands in the way of that, they're going to bulldoze over it. Right. Like we've seen time and time again that happening. So I can't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah. It's interesting too, especially with social media or any of these online platforms that there's a lot of ignorance and myself included. This is something that I've been wanting to learn more about. I honestly haven't made it a priority. I'm thinking back now how I think I read one of your blog posts or newsletters, Paul, where you went into depth about all the different ways that you're being private. And I was thinking, oh, I want to go in deep with this, but it's going to take a lot of my attention. So I kept putting it off. And to this day, I still haven't <laughs> gone through it, admittedly. <laughs> so maybe I'll be inspired today. And I've also been thinking that too. I've heard people mention how TikTok 
has, there's people that are concerned about the privacy side of TikTok. And that's my favorite social media network right now. And then I realized a few days ago, I'm like, gosh, I'm so ignorant about what even these concerns are. So here I am giving permission for a company to do things. I don't even know exactly what they're doing, right? So that ignorance is can be really dangerous. But if you see enough people doing something, you think, oh, it's fine. I don't need to worry about it because everybody else isn't worried about it. So we're all collectively going to be okay. And I think we see that now happening with the COVID virus. You see how if enough people around you are doing something, you think it's safe. But then if all those people are ignorant, then you're not actually safe. You're all putting yourself more at risk. Well, that's what happened in the beginning. All of the governments were like, there's nothing to worry about. It's not going to affect us. It's just like a cold. And maybe they were saying that to keep citizens calm, but it was also completely untrue. And it was kind of like, if you saw somebody out before all of this wearing a mask, you'd be like, what's going on? That's weird. And now it's like, if you see somebody out that isn't wearing a mask and everybody else is wearing a mask. So there's just this weird, I guess, like herd mentality that isn't necessarily bad, but it's just like if we hide behind that and it is a crutch for us not to put critical thought into things that we should be thinking about, then that's not a good thing. I mean, the whole Cambridge Analytica thing happened because one person asked for their data about themselves from the company. And they went out of business, they're like making billions of dollars or whatever. And they went out of business because they wouldn't give a single person their data. And it's like, when things like that happen, it's just like, this is a pretty bad situation that's happening right now. This brings up to me the intersection of responsible use and also the intersection of ethics and technological progress. And can we have some sort of I don't know, global ethical standard for how we use technological advancements with not just humanity, of course, all sentient life on the planet. But I read an article recently, really fascinating about in terms of the intersection of trackability and safety around COVID-19 of these implantable RFID NFC chips that they're, I guess, smaller than a grain of rice now. I mean, they're very, very, very infinitesimally tiny where not only do they have information storage capability, you know, they can scan these R- these implanted RFID chips, but now the latest patent was for one that has the ability to store cryptocurrency credits. <laughs> the theory, right? And of course, this is all theory. I don't want to get into conspiracy too much. That's not my game. Should I take off my tinfoil hat? <laughs> Just make sure it's extra pointy. Okay, gotcha. But the interesting thing about this patent, it, it doesn't mean that it will happen, but it's interesting to follow the possibility of we want to have this herd mentality of, okay, cool. Do you want the economy to reopen? Do you want to make sure you're physically safe? And I don't want to get into the vaccine thing, but the possibility of we have this technology that will verify that you have been inoculated or vaccinated. And if you haven't done that, and we can't trust that you are safe or inoculated against this, we are going to withhold your ability to have financial transactions. If we end up going toward a cashless society and we do end up going toward perhaps a global currency, who knows? But my point in, in all of this conversation is it really, one thing I've been really meditating on is the right use and ethical use of these potential technologies. And will people be like, okay, we can't take it. Please reopen the world. Please let us know we're safe. Implant the chip in us so we can actually, you know, go get food and do banking and pay our rent. I mean, at what point do people give up 
their level of physical autonomy, the agency over their own bodies and their civil liberties to, quote, make sure they're functioning members of a human society. I mean, it's a really layered conversation. I'm curious how you feel about it. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people think that, oh, well, you're a, a privacy nerd, so you must be against all things. And it's like even with Google and Apple jointly creating the COVID-19 contact tracing stuff. And I'm like, that seems like a pretty, like, as long as it's not abused, it seems like a pretty good idea. I think being able to know how the virus is spread seems like useful information to have. And I mean, they said that they would destroy the ability for the app to track data after that, which is seems like a good idea. Who knows if that'll happen? They also said that they were doing it in a way that scrubs personal data. So it just tracks it to a unique identifier in the phone, which could be traced back to the person, but possibly not. So I think there are responsible ways to do things that give some data to some other entities. I think that if it helps in that way, then maybe that makes sense. Should advertising follow us around the internet? I don't know, probably not. But as far as like finding a way to be able to stop the virus from spreading as rapidly as it tends to do if left unchecked, I don't know, maybe that's like, it isn't black and white, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like that everything in privacy is so nuanced and has so many layers that it's worth thinking about for sure we shouldn't just be taking people at their word a lot of the times because a lot of the times we don't know their even if it's a government like we don't know their motives for saying that or or doing that so i think yeah i mean critical thought in all areas of life but especially that seems like not the worst idea it also reminds me of how we have a lot of these smart home devices like the alexa or siri and how you wonder sometimes, are they always listening to us? And how much data are they collecting on us when we're not even addressing them? Or sometimes you say something and then an ad pops up and you're like, huh, that came off of a conversation (laughs) that I had that's a little creepy. And we kind of brush it off as being a joke. But there's always this little voice in me that's like, what if it's not just a joke? Like, what if this is actually a huge invasion of our privacy and a way that we're being manipulated? And, And yet the convenience of having those devices outweighs that fear. And I think about this too with my smartwatch. I have an Apple watch and I love it. I love being able to track my steps and being reminded to stand up and to take deep breaths and you know, just all the different tracking for my personal usage. But I often wonder like, is this data being shared and how is it being shared? And you know, I'm just that ignorance keeps coming up to play, but it feels like such a exhausting process to try to figure it out because I feel like a lot of the answers are buried. Maybe they're conspiracy theories too, you know. Or they're just unknowable. Right. We the, yeah. some companies are just never going to tell us what they collect and what they do with it. That's just the way that it goes. So I think being able finding that happy medium of being able to to question these things but not letting it rule our life. Like I have Apple devices. I wonder if they what they're learning about me or knowing about me. But then I also have a little piece of painter's tape stuck over over the cameras on my computers because I'm like, probably can't be hacked. But or like nobody's sitting at Apple watching that. But I don't know, like, just in case I'm going to cover it. So (laughs) yep, like I still use the device. And I think that 
I get for me, I like to think about, okay, well, how does this company make money? Like, what's their business model? For Apple, it's selling hardware and software primarily. I mean, now they they make content and some of their TV shows are actually pretty good. But for the most part, it's selling hardware. Whereas a company like Google or Facebook, their primary methods of of generating profit and revenue is through targeted advertising and data. So a company like that, I'm, pro- I'm not going to trust as much, right? It's just like with my company, like we don't need to sell anybody's data. One, we don't collect it. And two, it's not our business model. Like it would fundamentally hurt us as a company if we started to do nefarious things with people's data because we built a business on being a privacy-focused company. So it would only bite us in the ass if we did anything that was not in line with that. So I think if we look for companies, and that's why like, I even don't, I don't have email with Gmail. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy who doesn't have a Gmail account because they're free. And that just means, okay, if something's free, then if I'm not paying for the product, then I'm probably the product and probably don't feel comfortable with that. So what else is there that's out there? Which also brings up the point that it's hard sometimes to focus on privacy and it becomes a little like a two class system where, well, if you want privacy, you have to pay for it. And that to me is also a little uneasy feeling. Like I think that privacy and digital privacy should be a common or should be a fundamental human right. So then that be, and that's why we have a free version of our software because we think that it shouldn't be just for people who can afford privacy. It should be for everybody. And that's also layered in nuanced conversation as well. So I think it's not just about the financial side of it. It's also about the knowledge. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, I certainly find myself leaning towards free products. And the more that you speak about this, the more I want to question it, which is important and brings us back to awareness. For sure. And it's also about the knowledge. I mean, education and being educated is something that not everybody has access to, right? You have to have the skills to even research these things and being able to decipher them and understand the the legalese or whatever it's called. And, and you know, not everybody knows how to understand an article, especially if it has terms that you're not familiar with. That takes education. It, it takes access. You might not have a lot of access to the internet. I mean, we take that for granted, but not everybody has that. And so if I, who is somebody that loves to research, I am overwhelmed by privacy. And the more people that I meet, the more I realize a lot of people just don't enjoy even researching. They don't enjoy reading things. And if that's not a common desire, then how many people are just thinking, I'm not even going to bother to learn because it's too hard to understand all of this. For sure. And I mean, companies know that. So they make very long privacy policies or lace it with technical jargon that they know most people are not going to understand. So there's companies that actively are aware of all the things that you're saying and are using that against us, which is kind of a shame. Yeah, That's so interesting because, okay, on the subject of data collection and what you just said, Paul, using it against us or for their financial gain, did you happen to see Did either of you see, I'm not sure, Whitney, if you and I talked about this, on April 10th on Medium, there was a really fantastic article that was written by, um, what is his name, Julio Vincent Gambuto, and it's called Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting. Have you either of you seen this? Yes, I do. I remember that title. And it was so interesting. You know, it's a long one, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing because it's a long article. But this idea that the, quote, great American return to normal is coming. 
and that government and corporations and master marketers are going to try and basically make us feel normal again, that all of the horrific discomfort and fear and uncertainty, they're going to have, he's predicting, they're going to have this all-out marketing blitz to make sure we, quote, feel normal again. And surely, you know, all of the time we're spending on all of these platforms right now, all that data, it just makes me wonder once, I don't know, we start up again, for lack of a better term, it's going to be really interesting to observe the advertising campaigns and the ads popping up on all of our feeds and the general narrative around, I don't know, nationalism and freedom and rights and normalcy. And I don't know, this whole conversation just got me thinking, like, what the hell are we actually all in store for on the other side of this? Yeah, I mean, right now it's all basic. Every single TV commercial is there's YouTube videos of this showing videos of like the Fortune 500 companies all have basically the same commercials right now that we're all in this together. There's some light piano music in the background. There's some kid looking out the window. And it's like, we're not in the, like, you don't give a shit. Like, it just, it bothers me. I think those commercials are doing, are at least for myself and some other people doing the exact opposite of their intended effect, where it's like, it's just so disingenuous that people can totally see through it. So hopefully, Jason, to your point where, we're going to be marketed to shit after this because well, we got to get the economy back. And the, the way we do that is by buying everything we want and every single thing that we wished we could have got when we were in quarantine, but we couldn't get. So let's open our wallets and start spending. And I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with spending money in the economy, especially locally. But if we just get back to mindless hamsters in their wheels doing those sorts of things, then I we won't have learned anything from all this. Yeah. And it's funny because I find myself meditating on, I don't know, missing certain things. I'm a big basketball fan and it's like, oh, there's no NBA games on and, and we were supposed to be in the playoffs now. Where are my playoffs? Where are my NBA playoffs? Or, you know, I had this intention of perhaps buying a new car this year and that's probably not going to happen for multitude of reasons. But to your point, it's in this minimalism and self-reliance of quarantine baking and making food at home and nourishing ourselves and spending more time for some people, hopefully with their families and staying safe in, in their home space. I was having a conversation with Whitney and mine, our mutual friend, Adam Yasmin, who we had a phenomenal interview with him uh, a previous episode. I'm a little bit, I'll use the word terrified. I'm a little bit terrified to have Los Angeles go back. And we don't know what's waiting on the other side of this, but it's so quiet here right now, Paul, and it's so peaceful. And I don't remember ever in the 14 years I've lived here seeing so many stars in the sky, like going outside at night and looking up. The other night, I literally was like, holy shit, I've never seen this many stars in central LA. That's amazing. I'm a bit terrified at the possibility of LA, quote, going back to normal, because I like this quiet, peaceful, clean air, stars in the sky version of LA. And I kind of don't fucking want to, it to go back to regular LA. I really don't want that. Yeah, hopefully there's some happy medium between things moving and things and the stillness that you're describing. And it's like a minimalist <laughs> experience of LA, right? You know, you. Yeah, I can't even picture that as somebody who only comes and visits LA. I can't picture LA the way that it is right now. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is fascinating. And I'm enjoying it as well. And the environment seems to be benefiting from it. And maybe our mental health will benefit. It's hard to say too, because there's a lot of mental health drawbacks to the 
what's going on right now. I guess it's all a matter of perception and resources that we might have as individuals, but it's kind of like showing us we don't have to always be in our cars, which is a huge part of LA culture. <laughs> Actually, you could work from home and you know, you don't have to go to the bar all the time or go to restaurants all the time. You can make food at home as we've been talking about and I'm so curious what it's going to be like and to Jason's point also nervous so that you know from a selfish standpoint like ugh I can't imagine how much worse traffic is going to feel after all of this and just being used to driving somewhere in a half or a third of the time. <laughs> yeah. It's fine I was looking at this is I guess probably the beginning of March. I thought Apple Maps was broken cuz I was looking. So it's supposed to be somewhere else then and the trip got canceled. But I was looking at the roads and I was like, the traffic part of it is broken because there isn't any traffic. And it was like, <laughs> oh, no, wait, it's not. This is accurate. This seems amazing and also very, very surreal. So at least Jason, The Last Dance is airing right now, which I've been really, really enjoying. Yes. <laughs> Such a good show. So at least there's, what I mean, it, it's a story of the 90s. Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and the whole, all of the stuff that happened around that time. It's just, I'm not even, Whitney, I'm not even a basketball fan. I know zero about basketball, but it's done in such a way that it's a really compelling story. And the, the way that they made the documentary, I thought, was really compelling. So I've been really enjoying it as well, even though I know next to nothing <laughs> about basketball. So. Here's an interesting question, though, Paul, because you've worked with NBA players, though, right? Like Steve yeah. Nash and Shaq. Yep, I have. So the interesting thing as a fanboy and as a former basketball player myself, who's like psychotic about the sport, how did you like literally in that instance, as not being a fan of NBA basketball, approach like those particular projects, you know, of like, OK, I'm going to work with two of the most famous basketball players, two MVPs, whatever, not having a background of basketball knowledge. How did you approach those projects? not necessarily being a fan of the sport. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I wasn't really a fan of any sports. It was, I mean, I guess it started because the agency that I was a creative director of had the guy who ran the company had relationships with a bunch of agents. And the agents rep the agencies represented a lot of players. So it was just part of like, it was just and it bugs sports fans, but it, like, literally, dude, it was just part of my job. It's just, these are clients that I work with, just like, and like, just like Joe Blow, who I'm doing a website for, or this person I'm doing a website for, is just another person. And it was cool that they would sometimes have parties to launch, and this was in the 90s, this was a long time ago, but like they would have parties to launch their websites and I would get to go to those. And that was kind of neat. But otherwise, it was just like, this is just where, this is my nine to five, dude. Like, this is just what I'm doing for work. So I remember getting hassled, though. I was going to, because I did a bunch of work with NFL players, too, when, before I even liked football. This is probably like 20 years before I liked football. I was going to the Super Bowl in Tampa, and I was at the border crossing at the airport. And the border crossing person didn't believe that I worked for the NFL. And they were giving me a super hard time. I was just some dumb 20-year-old. And I was just like, yeah, I work for them. I'm going to the Super Bowl. It's work. And they're like, no, you don't. And I was like, what? I don't know how to answer this because I do. <laughs> I ended up selling my tickets too because somebody offered us a bunch of money for them. And I was like, I don't care. I don't even like sports. And so I sold it. So I didn't even go. I, I went to Tampa, but I didn't actually go to the game because. And now I'm like such a big football fan. I'm like, I can't believe I didn't go to the Super Bowl when I had free tickets. Like it just, it boggles my mind that that happened. 
Did you scalp these the old school way of like, got two tickets, everyone? Who wants Super Bowl? Super Bowl tickets, everybody. <laughs> did you like, did you old school scalp or did you that put them on Craigslist or how did you scalp the tickets? I uh, know the agent that gave me the tickets was like, do you want to go or do you want $2,000? Second, sell them to a buddy. I was like, I want $2,000. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know how he sold them, but I guess it was just his buddy just gave him money. And I mean, I think that's probably cheap now for Super Bowl tickets. Like, I don't even think you could get Super Bowl tickets for a couple grand. But yeah, that was such a funny time. I just, I cared so little about sports. I was just like, this is just a trip. This is just like a work trip to go to some function. And it was, (laughs) that function was the Super Bowl. (laughs) And then I just didn't go. That's amazing. That's amazing. Such a, so weird. So, I feel like so many lifetimes ago. Speaking of lifetimes ago, another thing I want to make sure we touch upon today is is rat. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, mentioned it very briefly as little icon for your website, which is, by the way, what's it called when you, in the URL browser, it shows your icon? Davicon. Yes. Yeah. The rat's there too. I don't, I don't know if you remembered that, but it, it's so cute when you pull up your website and you see that little pink rat. I always associate you with rats. I know you don't have any now. But you're one of few people I know that's had them as a companion animal. And it's just so sweet how you associate certain people with their relationship dynamics. In some cases, it's animals. And I just remember you sharing about your rats when we met up in LA last year. I was learning so much. I didn't realize they only lived for, it's a few years. Is that right? Yeah, they don't live for very long. And it's, yeah, it was too hard on my heart to deal with that. So yeah, we haven't had rats for, yeah, probably, I guess probably 2018 was when the last one passed away. Or maybe it was, no, maybe it was January 2019, the last one passed away. I actually have a friend of mine who's one of the most talented watercolor painters in the entire world, painted a, painted a picture of him. So I've got him hanging above my desk in my office. So. That is so sweet. It, it is heartbreaking because when you talk about rats and you shared about them, it, it really made me want to have one in my life. But then when I learned that they don't live that long, I thought, oh, I don't know if I could or would want to put myself through that. And then it reminds me of adopting older animals. And yeah. the same thing as you, you see all these animals that need homes. But if you know they only have maybe a few years of life left, it makes it really challenging. And it's it's such an interesting mental thing because I guess it depends on where these animals are coming from, you know, and, and Jason actually just helped rescue a cat. And I had a similar deliberation with myself, which was like, I really wanted to foster it. But I thought if I foster this cat, I'm going to end up keeping the cat. And I don't know if I'm feeling mentally prepared or set up. And there's like all these other factors. And it's such an interesting thing with animals how sometimes it's a simple decision or sometimes it feels really complex and you have to weigh out all the the pros and cons emotionally, you know? Yeah, we've never given back a foster. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right, yeah, it's almost kind of a given, like, yeah, Yeah. we know how this is going to end up, but we're going to play the game of, quote, fostering. It's so funny. I also think the cool thing about rats, I um, probably my first serious relationship when I was between 18 and 21, this young lady that I dated, her her sister and her husband had pet rats. And it was my first exposure to companion animals that were rats. And it was a shattering of, I think, probably the commonly held cultural narrative that they're dirty, diseased, creepy creatures. And I got to know these rats. And I thought, 
And this was also right around the same time that I was making the transition into a vegan lifestyle. And I remember starting to extrapolate this mentality, this newfound mentality around these rats to other beings that I realized I had an invalid narrative around, you know, farm animals, uh, pigs and cows and things like that, or specifically, not that I had this, but I realized it was a societal narrative around black cats and how black cats and black colored animals are the highest euthanization rate in shelters because there's this narrative that they're animal, they're pets of witches and witchcraft and they're evil and black cats and black animals are evil. And it just, to me, I think it's so wonderful that you, you've had this beautiful connection with this species because again, it just, it shatters this myth, this deeply held narrative that, I don't know, we judge things before we have any direct experience of them. And I think once we as humans have a direct experience, quite often sometimes, maybe not in all cases, but those cultural narratives can be changed and dramatically changed. Yeah, I mean, that was the only reason why I was on Instagram and I quit Instagram <laughs> after I had rats was to show people like, hey, they're not just vermin or for laboratory testing. Like they are smart, like dogs and cats. They're affectionate and cuddly. They get to know their human family and like even like working, like I've worked from home for over 20 years. And most of the time when we had rats, they'd crawl up my leg and sleep on my lap because they wanted to be part of their social creatures. So they just want to be part of that. And it's like even just friends coming over who would feel like they should be repulsed by them. And then seeing one like fall asleep on her back, like in my hands, be like, how can you feel repulsed by a little creature that is so cute? So yeah, I mean, part of why I, why I love rats so much is because they're misunderstood little underdogs. But yeah, it's tough. Like I can't, like as much as I would love to continue to adopt them, and yes, rats are adoptable, the local shelter typically has, yeah, two or three rats. And we can't, like, I can't even go in there because I know we'll, we'll make decisions to go in and take them and never bring them back. There's just such a misunderstood and, and the people have such a visceral reaction to them without having ever spent time in their presence or without ever like questioning or examining why they feel that way because they saw one in a movie and it did something wrong or something like that it's like no. we're in new york city yeah. I see a rat and everyone's screaming exactly <laughs> then, but then you see the great images in new york city of rats eating pizza and carrying it down the steps <laughs> at the subway and and you think oh, that's kind of cute and smart all of our and rats pizza too what's that all of our rats love pizza too oh, that's so cute I also love on your website, if you go to prjvs.com slash rats, which we will link to in our show notes, along with anything we reference for this episode at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I love that. I remember reading this probably through one of your newsletters, Paul. It's about finding your rat people. Yeah. And you start off by saying, when most people think about rats, they shudder in revulsion. Rats are often associated with thoughts like dirty, skin crawly, Halloween decorations, unwanted house guests, or even laboratory subjects. And then you start to translate into the 1%. The other 1% are the people that love rats and even have them as pets. And you kind of translate into finding your rat people. And I thought that was such a, a cool subject matter that you might want to touch upon here. Yeah, it's funny that I wrote that probably five years ago, and it's still the most, it's still the piece of writing that I wrote that I think resonated with the most people for the longest amount of time, which when I wrote it, I was just like, 
I just want to explain about rats and, and how I think they relate to creativity, but it's something that stuck with the people who read my stuff. So kind of what I was going for with that was we are never going to make everybody happy in our audience as creatives, uh, just like the majority of people in the world are never going to see how wonderful rats are as a species or as little animal companions. But there are certain people who love rats and who share like recipes for rats. Like I would make their own organic vegan kibble. They actually did that studies found as one of the reasons why we started to get rats was we found that they do really well on a vegan diet and they live longer and they're less prone to cancer because rats are pretty, they either die of lung infections or cancer basically at about two years. But if they are on a whole foods vegan diet, then they live a decent amount of time longer. Well, so that that's was, probably true with so many animals. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think as long I as they're so. omnivores. Yes. Like humans. So a part of kind of the, what I related in that article was that you don't have to find everybody to appreciate or like what you do. You just have to find that 1% of people that rat people. And it's funny too, because like people in my audience still call themselves rat people, which I never named them, but I guess this article (laughs) has just been making the rounds for forever. So yeah, I just think that pretty cool. It speaks as well to what we were talking about earlier of enough. And like, you don't have to have the biggest audience or the biggest number of people who appreciate and love and support your art or creativity or whatever it is that you do. You just have to have the right people do that. That can be enough, I think. Yeah. I love this because the idea popped in my head, Paul, of like the nichest, nichiest product ever, which <laughs> is like the organic whole food vegan rat food cookbook. <laughs> there, okay, so that exists. So specific, Paul. And it exists. And I own a copy of it. So, no. Yeah. Okay. Stop. It's a PDF. Yeah. There's That's a going whole... in the show notes and I'm looking it up right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. I got to find it. I don't know if it's still on the internet, but this is probably like 10 years ago. But there is a whole foods vegan cookbook for rats. Oh, There's some fruits God. and vegetables they cannot eat. And so it kind of went into that as like a, a diet, as like a how to have the best diet for your little rat companions. So, and the, when I looked it up, the one of the first hits I came across was a website called the Rat Guru. <laughs> that that <laughs> rings a bell. Maybe that's what Maybe it is. It. Yeah. Well, it's like also known as Splinter from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> knows so much. Just knows. So wow, much. this is a great little website. I don't know if that is. It's like there's a YouTube channel, can rat or website for a channel called Rat Chat, and the the video is called <laughs> Rat Be Vegan. Wow. See, this is so interesting when you get into this, and I I love how that came full circle because it is really about that enoughness, and I don't know how many people feel this way, but I know amongst entrepreneurs small business owners, content creators, influencers, there's this idea that you always have to have more people. And then there's also that great article or book about finding your true fans, the thousand true fans, and how true that is on social media, especially, or podcasting, pretty much anything that you do online. There's this pressure that we feel to have more and more people But having more people doesn't always translate into sales or engagement or whatever it is that you're after. I do think it's so important to keep coming back to 
finding the right people. And it's just like friends. I mean, do you need to have 5,000 friends on Facebook? No. (laughs) Are those people even your real friends? Is that even possible to have 5,000 true friends? One thing that I've learned a lot about myself during quarantine is the people that I feel most excited to text or to call or to have Zoom chats with. And there aren't that many. It's like, who do I think of during this time? Who do I want to check in on? Who's really meaningful in my life? And and it really is. Those are my rat people. You know, (laughs) Those are the people that I really want to be connected with that are important to me. And I've seen the same thing with my work online. And we see this with our work with Wellevator in this podcast is you don't need just a massive following, but it's tough because there's a lot of like societal or cultural pressure to have big numbers online. And I think that's probably one big benefit that you have, Paul, with not being much on social media. And your business isn't even built around having a massive following, you know? <laughs> it's like you're more focused on your newsletter and you've built a great community of people on there. And those connections are so, so valuable. And, and more and more, that's what I find myself wanting is to get away from this pressure to have the numbers and the vanity metrics. Yeah. I mean, I would I would even be scared to be like actually famous. Like I think of like the biggest nightmare would be like if somebody recognized me at yoga when people could do yoga together <laughs> and like Red judging my dude. like, isn't that Paul Jarvis? Like he look at the way he's doing down dog. Like that to me would just be <laughs> oh, that would just be so bad. Like, yeah, I don't create because I feel like that and I feel and I've I've watched a couple TMZ episodes lately, which is interesting because they're doing it on Zoom. But they're talking about how quarantine life isn't that much different for these big celebrities because they're so famous. They basically have been quarantined since they rose to fame because they can't go out. They can't do things outside without being like mobbed by people. And it's like they're not uh, some of them are not as affected as the rest of us because this is what their life was like previously It's slightly different now, obviously, but. It's like, I would never want to be in a point, like, I don't know why people want to be famous. It seems like the worst thing that could happen to a person. Can I share something that sure. is kind of the complete flip side of this coin fall? And it's <laughs> so funny you brought up Whole Foods. Okay. Was it you or Whitney mentioned Whole no, Foods? No, Whitney did. When, <laughs> I wanted to be famous for so long. And I, once I realized why I wanted to be famous, I started to let that desire dissolve itself. I want to say why in a minute, but the grocery store thing and being recognized like in yoga class, I remember saying to myself that (laughs) if I just get famous enough to be recognized at the grocery store, (laughs) I'll be satisfied. (laughs) And then when I had the TV series on Cooking Channel, people would recognize me in the grocery store. And I was like, I've made it now. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Pat on the back. (laughs) It didn't change my life, though. You know, it's that it's that thing of like, once I'm, quote, this famous somehow I'll I'll have a better life and I'll feel better about myself. And none of that ever happened. In me, it was yeah. kind of cool to like, when I was younger, to say that weird thing of if people recognize me in the grocery store. But then when it actually happened, life was no different on the other side of it. There's no different. And for me, I realized that like chasing fame or that desire to be famous was just a subverted desire to get the approval and acknowledgement I never got from my father growing up. That's all it was. It was like, How many, and I also started to think, you know, how many emotionally damaged or traumatized people come to Hollywood to quote, get famous just to try and get the approval and attention and love they didn't get from their parents or their family members. 
because that was the case for me. And like once I identified that, I was like, oh, I don't need to be famous anymore because I see that the core of it is just trying to get something I didn't get from one of, one of my parents. I should probably go to therapy instead. Yeah. And from one person, right? Like you wanted all of this thing because of one person. Obviously, that's a completely person with a very important relationship in your life. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, did, to bring it back to Tim Ferriss, like he wrote a blog post about fame and he talked about how somebody like their suicide note was addressed to him basically to tim because yeah and i mean like just the weight of that like i don't think there's enough therapy in the world for me to be able to deal with something like that if that happened to myself right like i don't know how i would be able to process something like that and it's just like and that's why i said like i don't i don't wish fame on, on anybody that i like because it just seems like it's a double-edged sword. And Jason, to your point, I think that when we're chasing these external things, it's really hard when we're chasing this validation from external sources. If we're not figuring out how to validate ourselves internally, then it's always going to be for naught. There's always going to be a bigger hill over the hill we've just summited, whether it's fame, whether it's money, whether it's something else. Like There's always going to be something next unless we figure out, like, okay, what do I actually need for myself? We talk about this a lot too. It's like when you see celebrities that have chosen to end their lives and you think like, why did they do that? They had it all. They had the best life. They had money. They had fame. They had romantic relationships and children and all these other things. And then we don't know how they're suffering inside. And Jason and I have mentioned this in multiple episodes, but it's always worth mentioning that that Jim Carrey quote, which I'll let Jason share because I know he likes to share it. Oh, yeah. How he said that. I wish that everyone could be rich and famous beyond their wildest dreams so they could see that's not the answer. Yeah. And the biggest one for me in recent years on this topic, Whitney, as you brought it up about celebrity suicides, was when Robin Williams took his own life. And that was like a sledgehammer to me because there are certain artists that have passed that have really their art and their creative work as artists have literally impacted and changed my life in myriad ways. But Robin Williams was one of those people that had a perception of him as being one of the most funny, joy-bringing humans that ever walked the earth. I mean, just pure joy and electricity and fun and playfulness. You know, he just kept that childlike spirit of joy alive in him. You know, when he took his own life, I mean, I just remember for me, that was like, Again, what Whitney said, you know, man with beautiful homes and millions of dollars and fame beyond fame and one of the most famous comedians in our history. And if he did that, like what's really going on under the surface with all this? What are we missing as a culture that promotes that once you attain that level of notoriety, fame, money, and influence, then suddenly you will have reached nirvana? And I think that is the script. But I remember when Robin took his life, I was like, fuck, this is not the script I want to be living out. Or even, Jason, to bring up something that you and I experienced on a much smaller, lighter level, remember years ago when we went to yoga and there was this one well-known actor who was in our class, and it was so distracting to be in a class with somebody like that, but I also felt so bad for this person because how could he focus on enjoying his yoga class when everybody in the room was paying attention to his every move. And then after class, they went up to him and wanted to get pictures or autographs and all of that. And I remember the energy. You could feel him and how uncomfortable he was to be in that position. He just wanted to be a normal person going into yoga class and focusing on that experience. 
he didn't want to be that famous guy in class. I mean, again, I this is my perception, but I imagine that that pressure and living in Los Angeles, we experience these things a lot. I've been in a number of yoga classes with people I recognize and they're just trying to do their things. It's it's a challenge. And then you wonder how isolated they must feel. Some people might think I'm not even going to bother going to yoga class and they miss out on these things. To your point, Paul, like they are in some sort of quarantine. I sit here thinking, sure, I could do yoga at home, but I want to go to yoga and experience it in person with a group of people. And I've actually haven't thought about how awkward it would be if everybody was watching me and what I was wearing, what did I look like? And was I doing the moves right? And how I would also feel bad that it was taking them out of the present moment because they were so fixated on me. Yeah, I mean, after a yoga practice, I can barely form words and sentences. So that would be a very bad time to yeah, I've also like I've split my yoga shorts like down the back seam in yoga. <laughs> and like if I was famous, that would have been on TMZ in like five seconds. But like because I'm not, it's just like the funniest thing ever. Like it was just a, it's a small town and a small yoga studio. I knew everybody anyway. So it's just like, yeah, so that just happened. And the teacher's like, do you want to keep going? I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Thank you for that class. visual. <laughs> Lucky for you, there's no Google search. Paul Jarvis butt crack exposed. Exactly. No Google search for that. Thank God. As far as we know, what if no, we, no what, if we just, what if uh, you pulled it up and somebody actually did do that? <laughs> and you're like, well, I guess I'm famous, and this is not the way that I wanted to find out. <laughs> I do have a page on my site because people search for it all the time, and I think it's the most ridiculous thing. But people look for Paul Jarvis net worth. So I made a page on my website that's me, I think, to a rap song, like in sweatpants, like fanning out a couple Canadian dollars in front of a 1989 Suzuki Esteem that isn't even mine. So I just thought it was like the dumbest thing that people are searching for my net worth. So I made a video kind of making, making a joke about it. So. Here's what I, Paul, where in the name of God did you find an 89 Suzuki Esteem? I know, it's a pretty amazing car. How? It was a loaner car. Somebody hit uh, one of our vehicles, and so we had to take it into the shop. The shop was like, I'm so sorry, all of our loaner cars, except for one, are out with customers, so this is what you get. I was like, okay, I'm a big car guy anyways, and I don't like I don't like just nice cars. I also like older, just whatever cars. And I was like, I'm actually pretty pleased about this vehicle right now. Oh, the esteem, man, that is a rare one. That's why I freaked out. I'm like, he had a Suzuki esteem. (laughs) My God. I just pulled up the page on your website and the music is perfect. I'm going to link to this in the show notes. Everybody needs to see this. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. Seems there's something like Jason would do too. So the two of you, gosh, I feel like I'm glad I made this connection because we've got (laughs) vegan food, animal lovers, sportsmans, semi-car enthusiasts. What uh, car do you currently have right now, Paul? I know last year when I saw you, you were debating about yeah. what to get, if you're going to keep what you had. and Yeah, I mean, you were gracious enough to give us a ride in your amazing car, and we ended up getting the same thing. So, Oh, yeah, so we, nice. We had, and how do you feel about it? Uh, it is amazing. I didn't want to like it as much as I do because I feel like everybody is so like, oh my God, this is such a fun car. This is such a cool car. It's like, oh, they're all just like, they've all just drank the Kool-Aid. And then I got one and I drove it and I was like, 
oh for fuck's sake this is such a cool car this is so amazing so honestly i geek out about it as yeah. similar you guys geeking out about sports it's like i just love my car so much and sometimes i feel like so materialistic but it brings me joy whatever brings you joy it's that's your own thing it doesn't matter if it brings other people joy or they they think that they have all these different notions of you and i, I think cars are so interesting in that sense I completely relate and I can geek out about it all of the time. And I remember Jason, actually, when I was thinking of getting the car, he's like, but everybody's going to have that car because of the <laughs> price range and how cool it is and what you can get for the money. And he was like kind of concerned for me. And, and I think that stopped him from getting the same car. It gave him some pause, but I don't feel that way at all. In fact, when I see that car on the road, I feel equally as excited for that other person. And I feel like when I pull up to the other people that have the same car, I like want to look over at them and give them a high f- a thumbs up. You know, so it's like- probably different because you all live in a, a big city, but we wave to other Tesla drivers and they wave back. <laughs> I mean, well, we live out in the middle of nowhere on an island, so there's not that many Tesla drivers, but we all wave at each other here. Yeah. Actually, that happened to us. Jason and I did a road trip to Colorado and we took the car and had to start go to all these different charging stations. And remember, Jason, we like ran into the same people in like a different town <laughs> because they were on the same like uh, road that we were on. So we would keep seeing them over and over again. Every they like pulled over at one point just to say hi to us again. It was a really neat experience. It is interesting how similar passions really, really catalyze people and bring them together. I mean, this is one of the beautiful things I think about our wiring to be social as human beings is. Oh, that thing lights you up? Cool, that lights me up too. Let's hang out. It's such a sweet, simple thing in terms of, I think probably, you know, one of the things that is keeping people perhaps sane right now in this quarantine period as we record this episode is how people can still use technology to share their passions about, yeah, basketball and food and cars and human connection. And I feel like it's intrinsic to our mental and emotional health as human beings to have those shared connections and those shared passions. Yeah, I thought the NFL draft was going to be weird because they did it virtually. Like it was basically a Zoom call with everybody. But it ended up being probably better than the previous years because you got to see all the coaches and the GMs in their houses with their families. And a lot of them were surrounded by their kids while they were making draft picks. And you got to see the players in their houses. So it was just a, a really endearing kind of look into the more human side of that, which I thought was actually really nice. Well, because of all of our shared interests, we could probably talk for hours and hours. <laughs> That's one of the joys of doing uh, remote podcasting right now is that as much as we love having guests in person, and hopefully we can do a- another one with you, Paul, next time you yeah. come out here, if whenever that'll be. Yeah. I think when you were here last year, it had been like a really long time since you had been to Los Angeles. Isn't that right? Yeah, but that was because we had been uh, caring for rats for so long. We're there's not kennels or places that you can bring rats to board. And yeah, there's not that many rat sitters that we know. So yeah, we've decided one of the reasons that we're just taking a break from, from adopting right now is that we can do things like travel, which not right now, but eventually when the border actually opens back up, then yeah, we will be able to, to do things like that with somewhat more frequency. Well, I hope you come back to Southern California. I know you you know a lot of people here. And have yeah. you done a uh, road trip with your car yet? No, we got it in February. <laughs> oh. 
then yeah. now we can't really do much. And I feel, yeah, I don't want to drive, like still go for drives every now and then, but I don't really want to be out if we don't have to be. So haven't, yeah, haven't really been doing a whole lot. Well, let me tell you, I think you like road trips because you drove down here yes. last time and yeah. doing a road trip in that car is one of the most amazing. It's probably the best road trip car I've ever been in. Jason said the same thing. And I look for any excuse to take it on long drives. <laughs> it's just very comfortable. The one thing is, though, that the windows need a tint because <laughs> Jason yeah. and I took it on a, a road trip last summer and man, it was hot because the windows are so clear. And Jason was like rigging up <laughs> like towels or blankets along the windows to shade out the sun. But other than that, it was great. And yeah, it'd be great to connect with you in person and been so wonderful to have this chat with you. I hope the listeners enjoyed all the different directions we went on here today. Jason, was there anything else that you wanted to touch upon? Yeah, there's one big curiosity, Paul, that I have as we wrap this up, but it's something that feels compelling enough to ask you. Going back to Tim Ferriss really quickly, I saw um, an interesting video a couple days ago. He posted this, I think in late February, of a conversation he had with Ryan Holiday. Uh, it's on Tim's YouTube channel. And he was talking about living in Austin, Texas in a much smaller city versus the New York, San Francisco, LA conversation. And as an artist, creative, or entrepreneur, the advantages, disadvantages between being in a smaller locale, a smaller city versus what probably most people think of if they want to, I don't know, go big is the New York, SF, LA thing. You living remotely where you do in Canada, what has that been like? And what was the decision process to do that versus a prototypical, I guess, choice for a lot of, again, artists, creatives, and entrepreneurs, small business owners, which is go to go to one of the big, big cities to, quote, make it. Like, why did you choose that? And what have you noticed living there, say, versus the, you know, the big city lifestyle? Yeah. And I mean, I did grow up in the Toronto area, and I lived in downtown Vancouver for probably a bit over a decade. And so I have lived in big Canadian cities, <laughs> at least. But I think a part of it was just that it was always on and there was always stimulus and that can feel really good sometimes but it can also feel really draining or tiring sometimes and I just wanted to see what it was like to remove that kind of constant energy and noise from my life <laughs> to see what would happen if that was the case and I mean I think part of what made it easier just like part of what makes quarantine a bit easier is that I had already established friendships and connections with people in my industry and outside my industry where we could still stay in touch or we could still do things together every now and then but it was I definitely remember as almost visceral the the feeling of like there's no stimulus other than my thoughts and I'm alone with my thoughts and holy fuck are they scary like that was the kind of the the biggest thing right at the beginning of going from a city of millions of people and living on the main street in Vancouver to a town of probably about a thousand people in the middle of nowhere it was just the like I just have my own thoughts like I have unless I figure out how to deal with going internal this is not going to go well for my mental health so having to deal with that initially was difficult, but then much better, I think. And I think I'm better for not figuring out, because I don't think you can figure out everything there. But just being able to kind of be present enough to deal with things that come up internally was good. 
And now I guess it just feels like it's interesting, like because we live on an island that when we're on the mainland, it feels like as soon as we get on the boat that we can breathe a bit better. And then once we get off the boat back onto the island, it's like, okay, I can take a full breath now. So it's just, it's interesting to be in big cities now, even though that's what I'm used to. That's what my partner was used to for, I don't know, probably like 20 odd years. But now it just like the pad become addicted to the pace of there not being a pace. Like I look out a friend of mine from Southern California was here a little while ago. And he was like, when I look out your windows, like nothing's ever happening. <laughs> like, I know, isn't that great? And he was like, no. <laughs> but so I think it takes some because he's like, but I'm like, there is a lot happening. You just have to, you just have to sit with it for a little while. It's like you can watch the seasons change or you can watch all that we have a myriad of animals who show up on our lawn all the time. I think they know that we're that we're vegan and that they're Aww. safe here. So they're just always around. Like what kind? Rabbits, squirrels, raccoons, all sorts of birds, um, some kind of burrowing rodent that I should know what they are. A vole, maybe. I'm not sure what kind of burrowing rodenty things they are. Lizards, snakes. We have deer and bear, but we have a fence because I got a big garden. So we don't have deer or bear inside our acreage. That's too bad. I kind of wish I just fenced off the garden. So like sometimes I could look out the window and there would be like a bear or something sitting on the lawn. I don't know if that would actually really happen. But in my mind, if we hadn't fenced the whole property in, then maybe it would. So yeah, it's a different pace. And it's just maybe it isn't right for everybody. I have no idea. But I just think it suits me really well. And it's something that took a while to get used to. But now that I'm used to it, I don't think I could go back to the pace and the the noise and the intensity of a city. But I do like it sometimes. Like even when I'm in Los Angeles or when I'm in Seattle or Vancouver, I do really like being in those places, especially that I can, there's like more vegan restaurants that I could possibly eat at. And that to me is the most amazing thing in the world because there aren't a ton here. And all the ones that are here, we've been to so many times. And they're good, but like we're used to them. Whereas when we go to a new city... We have the same thing, though. It's like, it's, <laughs> you get used to whatever you have. So, yeah. so the grass isn't always greener. <laughs> Damn it. No, I mean, I think it is. It, well, maybe it is because just you describing how you live sounds really amazing. And and I, too, I, I actually, for the most part, feel really happy in Los Angeles. But it's also, am I happy just because I'm used to it? You know, like maybe I would feel happier living like you do. And just as perspective that I can walk to some of the best vegan restaurants in the country, but I don't go to them that much. And I, they, I get old, like it's, they're just yeah. kind of old news. It's, it's more fun in a way when you go to a city that you don't get to visit very much and you get to try it. It reminds me of Jason and I would look forward to going to New York once a year when we were traveling for business. And there was this one cafe, bringing it back a full circle again. It's a boba cafe called Boba Guys. <laughs> and Jason and I would be every trip. It was like, you got to go to Boba Guys. They have the best boba in the country. And then they opened up a couple locations in Los Angeles. And it's like not exciting anymore. You're like, well, we can go there anytime we want. It's not a once a year treat. And so it's not exciting. (laughs) Same thing happened with a number of restaurants that were in different cities and came to Los Angeles. And now they're just too convenient. So I think you might have the 
a really perfect scenario there. I also remember last year, I think you hadn't even tried the Beyond Burger or something. No, the Impossible, out. because they don't have Impossible in Canada yet. Still? Still. I wow. tweet them every couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you get it shipped out there or no? I don't know. But that, like, I could ship them. How about you that? Could, I'll send you a little Impossible care package. <laughs> I appreciate that, but I think I want to keep it where it's just something so exciting when we are in America that it's such a treat because we can't yeah. get it here. So yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's just like, what is it called? Cineholic in yep. Seattle. I don't know if they have them anywhere other than Seattle, but in Seattle, the first place that I go they is Cineholic. Oh, right. Nice. Right, Jason? Don't they have one still in LA? There's one in Echo Park that came here, I think three years ago. And it was the same effect because anytime we would go to the Bay, especially to the OG location in Berkeley, it was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And now there's literally one 10 minutes from my house. And I'm like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's I still wanna, great. It's yeah. great. But yeah. yeah, I don't want to get meh about my Cineholic. So I need it to just be the like once a year treat that I get. Yep. Yeah. See, <laughs> these are good lessons to remind ourselves. I think that's actually one thing that, that'll be nice about the stay-at-home orders being lifted and just the things that we appreciate that we haven't had a chance to experience in a while. And, you know, the things that we used to take for granted, just going to a restaurant is going to seem like so exciting or going to an, a concert whenever we can do that again or the movie theaters and, and just seeing how much things shift and also be sad coming back to yoga. I don't know if, if my yoga classes will ever be the same. They may never have as many people in them. And some of my teachers will not be teaching classes at the studio I was going to. I might not go to that studio anymore. There's a lot of things that are, are going to shift. And, and even if they seem like they might be unpleasant shifts, we'll get used to them again and new things will happen. And coming back to the normalcy thing that we were talking about at the very beginning, things are always changing. And we like to think that we have uh, security, but <laughs> change is happening every single moment. And sometimes it's just so subtle, we don't even realize it. So being able to adapt and be okay with that change is, is such an important skill that I think we're all learning right now. And I'm grateful for that, for sure. Well, I think as much as we've enjoyed speaking with you, Paul, yeah. This is the time that it comes to an end. Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful to reconnect and to share you with, with our audience. And maybe, do you think that you shared some things today that you don't normally talk about? That's always my hope. Yeah, I think so. I think there's definitely some stuff in there that I don't usually talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Although maybe you're an open book like we are, and you've done so many podcasts and so many articles that there's so much of your life that's been touched upon. So. This has just been like a little mishmash of Paul here. Yeah, I contain multitudes or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am so excited to dive more in and I'm certainly wanting to check out Fathom and finish your book too. I haven't finished it yet. So this whole conversation has inspired me. I'm going to go back through the archives of your newsletters and cool. do my annual or semi-annual uh, review of your all of your newsletters that I have not yet read this year. And cool. uh, I look forward to seeing what goes on and what's next for you. And I can't wait for your vegan rat recipe cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> We're happy to promote that, Paul. Happy to yeah. promote, of course, all yeah. your stuff, but in particular, the nichiest of the niche. Gotcha. We will get it all over the place. Gotcha. Well, yeah. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. This is such a fun conversation to have today. So appreciate you guys.
Thanks for being here. Yeah. And uh, we will have all of the links to Paul's great work, his books, his wonderful newsletter, his website, his teachings, and anything Paul Jarvis related in the show notes at wellevator.com. The website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We will have links to all of the previous episodes we mentioned and all the great resources for you, dear listener. And you will also find our free resources and ebooks like You Are Enough and From Chaos to Calm and things for you to keep yourself well on a physical, mental, and emotional level, especially right now. And we will be back with another fantastic episode for you to digest like tiny little vegan whole food rat kibble. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 